So we're looking at um, Stephen, who was one of the seven that were appointed to oversee the food service, but he turns out to be a powerful preacher as well, and the Hellenistic Jews have issues with him. Uh, In chapter 6, they uh, are unable, in verse 10, to cope with the wisdom of the Spirit that he's speaking by, and so they... uh, come up with some accusations against him in verse 11 that he speaks against Moses and against God and in verse 13 against this holy place and the law and again in 14 uh, the holy pl- this place and the customs that Moses handed down to us come on in sir Acts chapter 7 And so, when we look at Stephen's speech, what we're going to see, he goes through points of the history of the Israelites, points that the people that he's speaking to would have very much agreed with. This is their uh, cherished history. You know, this is kind of being patriotic when you talk about these things. But what you actually see is that Stephen is dealing with some of these accusations and making a number of important points Uh, kind of laying groundwork uh, for some of the things that he's going to say. Now, he starts out by talking about Abraham and all the things God did for Abraham. But one of the things that we see in verse 2 is the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Now, they kept harping on Stephen speaking against this holy place, because their idea was that, that the holy place, the holy place, was the temple in Jerusalem. Well, one of the points that Stephen's going to make consistently throughout this is, well, it's not just the temple in Jerusalem where the God of glory has appeared. He appeared over there in Mesopotamia to, to Abraham and uh, told him to make a break with his past. His, leave his country, his relatives, and come into this land that God would show him. And uh, they settled in Haran, and then after his father died, he moved on to this country, this land of Canaan, even though he didn't get any of that. Um, but, but his descendants did, and they would, after they'd been mis- enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Now, we know that that turned out to be 430 years. I suspect there he's just, you know, rounding the number off. I don't really see a contradiction between 400 and 430. Here he's just not giving the precise number. Um, and uh, then they come out and serve me in this place. Um, now, it's interesting that verses 6 and 7 really pretty much outline the rest of the speech. I don't think we talked about this last week uh, yet, but if you look at it, in verse 6, he talks about what um, what uh, time period, what, uh, what uh, situation of the Jews. When they're in Egypt? Yes, enslaved in Egypt. And that's going to be verses 9 to 22. And then, in the first part of verse 7, God would judge that nation they were in bondage to, and they'd come out. That's verse 23 to 43. And then they will serve me in this place, and that's verse 44 to 50. 
And there are actually in those sections some verses that really uh, tie specifically back into verses 6 and 7. So this, this sort of becomes the outline uh, for, for what they're going to do. What's your breakdown on the scripture? 20? Yeah, 9 to 22, then 23 to 43, and then 44 to 50. It is, so that's that's basically what uh, he's saying about Abraham, and, and most of that we covered last week, just not all of that. Do you have some comments and questions about the speech through verse 8? Clearly, he is not going through every detail. I don't think he intends to go through every detail. I think he's pulling out some key events in their history, and particularly ones that are applicable to the point that he is making. So, uh, 9 to 16. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob his father and all his relatives to come to him, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. Mm-hmm. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb, which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. Very good. We are in Acts 7, verses we just read, verses 9 to 16. Now, uh, there's a number of things that are intriguing about this story of Joseph in the light of this context. He talks about what they did to Joseph. What did they do to him? Sold him. Where? Into Egypt. Did you notice how many times he mentions Egypt in verses uh, 9, uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, and then on down again in uh, verse 15? You know, he really stressed the point he was, he was sold into Egypt. But what does he say about Joseph in Egypt in verse 9? God was with him. him. Do you see the point again? God is not confined to this holy place. God was with Joseph in Egypt. So, So God's presence is wherever his people are. Now, you know the story of Joseph. But as you look at the way he tells it in these verses particularly in verses 9 and 10. Does this remind you of anything? The patriarchs becoming jealous of Joseph, and yet God was with him, and God granting him favor and wisdom, and then God using Joseph to rescue him, deliver his people. Do those things remind you of anybody? 
the Pharisees became jealous of, of Jesus and plotted to kill him and they did and, but God was still with him and through him was the salvation of all those including those that he had Yes, there's so many parallels between Jesus and Joseph, it's amazing. Um, You've got a specific statement in Acts 10.38 that God was with Jesus. So that statement is made very explicitly. You've also got the statements in Luke, and remember Luke, you know, wrote Acts. In Luke chapter 2, in verse 40, he increased in wisdom and the grace of God was on him. And again in Luke 2.52, he increased in wisdom and in favor with God and man. So he is paralleling Joseph with Jesus. He doesn't say so yet. Uh, Although you know where he's going. He's eventually going to say, you're acting just like your fathers and rejecting the deliverers that God sends you. When they rejected Jesus... They were rejecting, you know, someone like Joseph that came for the same purpose. You know, are there other parallels that you see between Jesus and Joseph? God used their wicked deed to provide for his people. Yes. What else? Are there... His father's favorite. Yes. And they both have 12 close brothers? Uh, sort of. Yeah, 11 in Joseph's case. He was one of the 12. That's right. That's right. But that that brings up an interesting thing. I don't know if this is by design or not. But do you remember what they thought had happened to Joseph? I mean, by the time they came down to Egypt... And they spoke to Joseph without knowing it was Joseph. What did they say about their brother? He is no more. He is no more. Implying he's dead. What did Jacob think about him? He was dead. To them he was dead. But after his death, you know, he ends up being with on the first visit, how many of his brothers? Ten. And on the second visit, how many? Eleven. Now, do you remember Jesus when he was raised from the dead? On the first Sunday, he was with how many of his disciples? Ten. No Judas, no Thomas. Yeah. The second week, it was with the eleven. You know, I don't know, maybe that's just coincidental. But there are a lot of interesting details that make you wonder. Um, you know, just just a lot of things. You, you can you can multiply those parallels. So you can keep, you know, thinking about that. Uh, you know, not all of those are brought out in the text, but, but uh, he brings out enough that you can certainly see the parallels with Jesus for the point he's going to make. Now, I want you to notice something else, too. When he says in verse 10, that God granted Joseph favor and wisdom. We'll look back at 6.3. And favor and grace are really the same word. Look at 6.8 and 6.10. 
Who else do you know that's full of wisdom and of grace and favor? Stephen. Stephen. Joseph is kind of a prototype of even Stephen himself. Stephen was full of the very qualities that God granted Joseph. I think that's kind of ironic. That Joseph, that, that Stephen presents a man who was a lot like he was. Um, so, then he tells the story. Um, here. Um, and the story is, there was this famine, and he sent the sons down to Egypt and on the second visit you know Joseph showed himself to his brothers and sent word for Jacob and everybody to come down and how many people came down? Yeah. Now, does that cause you any difficulties? That there were 75 people that came down? Apparently looking at this note, it says that in Genesis 4627, uh, it totaled 70, about 75. Yes. In Genesis 4627, it says there were 70. And in Exodus 1-5, it says there were 70. And yet here, Stephen said there were 75. So that's a bit of a uh, challenge for us. How do you reconcile those two? I have to read the note. <laughs> what, what does it say? What, what's its view? Uh, this number follows the Septuagint, which arrived at 75 by including the son and grandson of Manasseh, and two sons and a grandson of Ephraim. Okay, I think that's a very astute note. I think that's probably the case. Because actually, some were already in Egypt, Joseph's descendants. And so when he talks about 75 and all arriving there, he's probably grouping together the ones who've already been there, along with those who came down, and that was the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrews, reading of those passages in Genesis and Exodus. And of course the Septuagint would be the Bible that would be used, you know, by people who spoke Greek. And so it would be typical that they'd say that. You know, they, you, we wouldn't normally, if we quote an English translation, we don't normally change the translation to reflect a better reading of the original or something like that. We usually just use it the way it's translated. And, you know, so, so probably he's following the Septuagint that probably was accurate in the sense that it was grouping together the ones that were already down there. That's probably the best way to explain that. Okay, comments or questions down through uh, verse 14. Well, Jacob uh, and our fathers died, and what happened to their bodies? They were brought back to Shechem. Yes, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had purchased. Um, for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Now, where was Shechem in Stephen's day? Do you know? It was in the land of the Samaritans. It was in Samaria. Where is the gospel going to go in the next chapter? To Samaria. So that may, it may be uh, a 
appropriate that Luke adds that detail of Stephen's speech in view of the next step. Actually, we already knew that was the next step, didn't we? Back from chapter 1, verse 8. Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. All right, anything you want to say then through verse 16? All right, we've got the next step. Um, Let's do this kind of a stage at a time. Uh, How about 17 to 22? But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born, and was well pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house, in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter uh, took Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Okay, so um, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Does that remind you of anything in the book of Acts? What the church keeps doing. Yeah, absolutely. Look back at 6-7, and there's another variety of other passages. The, the God's people were again growing and multiplying as they had in Egypt. But then what happens? Something bad. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. I think this was something good. And what did he do? Yeah, and mistreated them. Why was that good? So they'd want to leave. Yes, exactly. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if they had just decided to stay in Egypt and had not gone to possess the land that God had given to them? So there's one sense in which you can see God's purpose behind allowing this new Pharaoh to come along and to mistreat the people. They were anxious to leave. They were praying to God uh, that he would uh, send them out and so forth. Uh, So, if it weren't for his policies, the Israelites might have never even thought about leaving. Um, And it's at that time that Moses was born. And you remember the story uh, about Moses that uh, they're supposed to throw the babies in the river. Well, he was kept three months at home, and then they did sort of throw him in the river, didn't they? Yeah. How did they do that? They wrapped him in a, a basket-like diaper first. <laughs> a floating basket. Yeah, yeah. They put it. You, you know, a boat first. You know the word that's used in Exodus for what they put him in? Is the same word for the ark that Noah built in chapter, you know, six of Genesis. It's a floating thing that would float on the uh, water, and uh, so that's what they, they. She puts it in the in the Nile. It's not quite the way Pharaoh had in mind, but you remember what happened. Pharaoh's daughter found him and took him and raised him, and he was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and was a man of power and words and deeds. So God sort of prepared Moses by using uh, Pharaoh's own educational system to equip him 
for the task that he was going to have. Now remember, what had Stephen been accused of speaking against? Moses. Doesn't sound like he's against Moses, does it? You know, it's interesting that he spends more time on Moses in this speech than he really does on anyone else. And um, there's some more things we'll say about that, but I think I'll wait till we get a little bit more of his story in. So, comments and questions through verse 22. Alright, 23 to 29. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me, as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, you know, Hebrews 11 tells some about this as well, and of course they count in Exodus. This is a rather remarkable event. When Moses is 40, what does he decide to do? Find his roots. Yeah, that's right. And defend his own people. Now, was that would that have been an easy choice for him to make? I mean, think about all the, uh, you know, stuff you get as Pharaoh's grandson. He was giving up a lot to identify himself with this oppressed people, but that's the decision that he makes. And so he sees an Israelite being mistreated by an Egyptian, and what does he do? He kills the Egyptian. He kills the Egyptian. And what does he think the Israelites will understand? He's there to save them. They didn't understand it, did they? They were ignorant. You might think about passages like 317, that specifically mentioned they were ignorant another time when God sent them someone that they should have known was there to deliver them. And uh, they did about the same thing. Because the next day, a couple of the Israelites are fighting, and he tries to break that up. And the guy says, who made you a ruler and judge over us? You're going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? So clearly... They are rejecting Moses as a deliverer. Now it's interesting. In verse 27, the verb pushed him away. It's only found one more time in the book of Acts. It's found in Acts 13, 46, when the Jews repudiate the word of God that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. They pushed away the word, just like this Israelite had pushed away Moses. And uh, so that's kind of uh, intriguing. And uh, so he fled and uh, ended up in the land of Midian, actually for another 40 years, um, as a shepherd in the land of Midian. So Moses gets to the ripe old age of 80, having really accomplished nothing of significance other than herding some some sheep and fathering a couple of sons. Um, all right, comments to this point of questions. Uh, what verse in Acts 13 did you say? 46. Oh, okay. 
Well, look at what happens next. Thir 30 to 34. And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. <clears throat> and when Moses saw it, he began to marvel at the sight. And as he approached to look more closely, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groans, and I have come down to deliver them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. Fine! Remarkable! Moses sees this bush that's on fire but isn't consumed. He goes over to look at it, and God speaks to him. And God says, I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses is scared to death. And what does God tell him to do? Take his sandals off. Why? Send it on holy ground. Holy ground! Where was this holy ground? The wilderness of Mount Sinai? Yeah, the land of Midian. There around Mount Sinai. Would you have thought that Midian's land would be a holy place? So holy that you had to take your sandals off? Do you see how Stephen is continuing to get in jabs about their exaggerated exclusivity of this holy place like there was nowhere else where God could ever be? What makes a place holy? God. God being there. And where can God be? Anywhere he wants to be. He surely is showing that uh, through this speech and throughout uh, you know, his history. So wherever God wants to make himself known, that is holy ground. And uh, so he's sending Moses back now to rescue his groaning people in Egypt. Comments and questions through 34. Thirty-five to thirty-eight. It's Moses whom they disowned, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for forty years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Alright, that's a pretty powerful passage. The very Moses they rejected saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? God makes ruler and judge. <laughs> God makes him the deliverer who leads them out. Isn't that a slap in the face at the faithless Israelites who had rejected this very Moses? And uh, this man led him out. You might go back for just a second. Well, notice this. Notice how 
every, every verse from 35 to 38 begins. And then look back at 6.14. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and so forth. Well, he keeps talking about this Moses, this man, this is the Moses. And I think he's going right back to what they had said, this Nazarene. Well, you've got now this Moses. And uh, so what did, what did Moses do in verse 36 when he led them out? Where? Egypt, Red Sea, Wilderness. Wow. Where doesn't God, you know, equip his people to work wonders and signs? You know, and this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. That's Deuteronomy 18. Wonder who that was. We know, right? And he's already made a reference in Acts 3 to this passage and applied it to Jesus. So Moses himself said that there was going to be another Moses. There was going to be another one like him. Now there's so much to say about that. Uh, one thing is, remember they were saying that he speaks against this holy place and the law? Well, now we find out there was going to be another prophet who would have more revelation from God that they'd need to listen to. This idea that God has given additional revelation through a later prophet Jesus is what Moses himself said. Moses indicated that revelation from God was not going to stop with the law that he gave. And just the very idea of Jesus being a prophet like Moses. What kind of parallels can you see between Moses and Jesus? Threatened at birth. Yes. Threatened at birth. Came out of Egypt. Came out of Egypt. Wonders and signs. Yes, wonders and signs. You've certainly got that with Jesus all over the place. Lawgiver. Lawgiver. Provided bread. Yes, he provided the true bread in Jesus' case. Look at some of the parallels even here. Moses approached the people seeking to save them. Didn't Jesus approach his people seeking to save them? You've got a statement made in... Um, 722 that Moses was a man of power in words and deeds and in Luke 24 19 Jesus the Nazarene was a prophet mighty in deed and word it's almost the same thing that those two on the road to Emmaus said about Jesus that said about Moses. And see, I think it's significant when it's a statement made in Luke. You know, because Luke wrote both of them. So he, he writes, you know, with this, you know, plan and pattern in, in what he says. 
And then the idea that Jesus becomes the ruler and judge or the ruler and deliverer in 738. That's what Moses was. Isn't that what Jesus was? In 531, Jesus is called a prince and a savior. It's about like saying a ruler and deliverer. And so it's just, it's a perfect parallel. Here's a man that God, that they rejected that God chooses to be the deliverer. Whether they wanted Moses to be the deliverer or not, that's the one God chose. Whether they wanted Jesus to be the deliverer or not, that's the one that God chose. And then, in verse 38, he was with the congregation in the wilderness, with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. So again, you see, even on Mount Sinai, the Lord was there, the angel was there, and he received the law. Of course, we remember all the events that occurred on Mount Sinai. Is there any doubt when they gathered around Mount Sinai that God was present on that mountain? You know, Whoever said that there was one exclusive holy place and there was no other place God ever appeared? I mean, it pretty much looks to me like he appears all over the place. You know, Stephen keeps showing that everywhere. Stephen's very geographical about this. He keeps mentioning all these places because that's where God appears. That's where holy ground is. That's where the law is received. That's where signs and wonders are done. All right, comments and questions through 38. Um, something, and kind of backing up a little bit. But sure. Some, okay, uh, something I'm kind of confused about that I never understood is, when in verse 30 it says angel of the Lord, and then in verse 35 it talks about the angel, but then it says the Lord spoke. Like how, I don't understand the difference between like the angel, but then the Lord spoke. Or what was the Lord there? I don't understand how that works. Well... I'm not sure I do either. Okay. Um, there are various possibilities. Perhaps the Lord speaks to his angel. Because okay. if, you know, if, if Obama speaks to his press secretary, we still talk about, you know, things Obama said. Right. But it was actually not him that physically said it. Right. Okay. So that would be a possibility. There are some people who think the angel of the Lord is like a pre-incarnate Jesus. That's a pretty common view. Oh, what, what is that word he's saying? Well, like Jesus before he became a man. Okay. Before the incarnation, before he became a man. Okay. So is that, a lot of people think that the angel of the Lord was actually just another way of talking about Jesus. I'm not there yet, well, but a lot of people think that. Because I think, uh, I don't know if that makes sense along with, you know, when, um, I forget where it is, when, as the angel of the Lord came down with, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, with Lot, when it talked about the two angels or something came down, but then wasn't there a third angel right before, or, I'm not getting the story mixed up, but mm -hmm. there was, was. they thought that Jesus was, like, the third angel, or, yeah, it, it seems like God is talking with, uh, Moses, or with Abraham, and yet, it's this, one of these men that came. Okay. And so some people think that it was Jesus or whatever. Okay. But we're not exactly sure. I, I'm, I'm more inclined to think it was an angel and that God speaks to his angel. Okay. But, but probably the majority view is that the angel of the Lord was actually Jesus or something like that. But there sometimes seems something special about 
this expression, the angel of the Lord. He shows up in a number of places in the Old Testament. He does. Yes, he does. Okay. So there's definitely something special about the angel of the Lord. And, you know. Okay. I'll stop this there. Yeah, keep working on it. I thought it was... The when we read verse 35, it reminded me actually of Acts 2.36. Therefore yes. let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Exactly. So you've got this person who you disowned, well, God has sent him to be these things. Uh, same kind of idea there. Absolutely. So we have another parallel. Excellent. Yeah, you really see it. Once you start seeing his point, wow, this is a, he's making powerful points. Okay, so a while back when you were talking about, like, Pharaoh pristine Israelites and everything and oppressing them and how they spread out and, you know, when you were talking about that, that, is that a parallel to the church? Like, they were all in Jerusalem and then, like, they were persecuted and that was good because then they spread out. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think Pharaoh's persecution uh, has some parallels, at least, to the persecution of the uh, early Christians. Um, so, yeah. Other thoughts? Then the more they multiply, the more they get persecuted. Alright, look at uh, 39 to 44. whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, as for this Moses, who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you offer... Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Uh, you also took up the tabernacle of Malat and the star of your god Rimphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Okay, so it's easy for these people to rebel again. Look at verse 39. They've already rejected him when he was 40. Now after he leads them out, they reject him again. And what do they say to Aaron? Make us something, because we don't know about this Moses guy. Yeah, and well, he throws some gold in the fire and out comes this calf for them to worship. And uh, so they reject Moses twice. You know, they reject God's chosen deliverers and leaders. And uh, they they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idols. The idol. And were rejoicing. Notice this expression in verse 41. They were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And when it says they were rejoicing the works of their hands, it means they were rejoicing in what? Themselves. Yeah, but in this context. The idol. The idol. The calf that their hands made. That's a really common uh, way of describing idolatry to condemn it. Uh, For example, Deuteronomy 4.28, There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, 
wood and stone which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Or you've got Psalm 115. I've got a reason why I'm belaboring this point, by the way. Um, But Psalm 115 and verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. And then in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 16. I will pronounce my judgments on them concerning all their wickedness, whereby they have forsaken me and have offered sacrifice to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. That's just a sampling of passages. There are several others that use similar expressions that talk about, you know, idolatry being worshiping the work of their hands. Well, obviously, if they made it, it's not worth worshiping. That's the point about it being the work of their hands. You know, we are actually the work of God's hands. We're his handiwork. Uh, So... That was really foolish on their part. But that's what they did. Um, And so, what did God do in verse 42? Checked away. Yeah. They reject God. God rejects them. He let them serve the host of heaven. He, He went ahead and allowed them to pursue their chosen, um, you know their own choices. And, uh, you know, he he sees them as being idolatrous and unconcerned about him. And so where does he eventually send them in verse 43? Yeah, beyond Babylon. You know, so he he's going to exile them. You know, when they reject Moses the first time, he goes into exile. When they reject Moses the second time, they're going to go into exile. And they eventually do beyond Babylon. So what you really see in this section with Moses, so much is their rejection of God's chosen and appointed Savior. Comments and questions? Is there any, any uh, significance in the fact that... Uh uh, the statement is made that Moses brought them out of Egypt uh, and uh, they turned back to Egypt and uh, uh, again it's it's maybe just emphasis on the, their rebellion against God definitely shows that and it's almost like you know when God brings us out of the world or sin or whatever and then we turn around and want to go back into it you know, I think that would be a parallel. I like the sow that was washed returning to her wallowing in the mire or whatever. Other thoughts? Do we have another, kind of another parallel with Christ, with the twice rejected, uh, in a sense, I guess, uh, when man rejected Christ the first time, so to speak. Christ was put to death, and so he was, in a sense, exiled, sent away. And when he came back, we have the opportunity to accept him or reject him. And if we reject him, then the second time, we're going to be sent further away. We're going to be the ones going to a place we don't want to go to, beyond Babylon. Maybe so. Maybe so. I kind of have a side question. I mean, it kind of ties in, but back in Exodus 32, and it talks about, you know, the story and stuff. Um, 
does Moses, you know, when Moses comes back to Aaron, then, you know, and, and Moses is like, why did you make the gods or whatever? And Aaron says in verse 24, um, you know, he was telling Moses, he told them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it in the fire, and this calf came out. And it almost sounds like, is Aaron trying to act like to Moses, like he's shocked that a calf came out? Is that what I think that's it? the idea. I just always, it's always been humorous to me. I don't know if I, I'm taking it the wrong way. No, I think you're taking it the right oh, way. Okay. I think it is kind of funny. I feel like he's surprised. The place says this calf came out, like it just magically. Yeah, what do we call that? A lie? Yeah, that, a lie is a rather uh, direct way of saying that. <laughs> you know, kind of uh, shifting the blame or rationalizing. You know, you just, well, lo and behold, the calf came out. Yeah, you're, you're not going to believe it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. I just always thought that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Reminds me of kids and the excuses they give their parents. <laughs> you know, but sometimes we do the very same thing with God, you know. Yeah. As if, well, you know, it wasn't my fault. All right. 44 to 50. 44 to 50? Yes. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? Well, so, he talks about the tabernacle that Moses built according to pattern, and then the fathers brought it with Joshua, when they conquered the land, you remember Joshua's name is the same as Jesus, bringing them into the promised land. Comes down to the time of David. What did David want to do? Build a house for the Lord. And what did the Lord decide? Solomon would. Solomon would. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. That's an interesting way to describe the temple. A house made by human hands. Where have we seen that phrase already? Back in 41. Yeah, with the golden calf rejoicing the works of their hands. Can they do the same thing with the temple that they did with the golden calf and make an idol out of it? Had they done so? It had become like their lucky charm. We got the temple here. This is God's house, God's place. Nothing can hurt us. You know, it's, it's possible to take something like the temple and have an idolatrous view. Because when you worship the house and not the God who's dwelling in the house, you've got it all wrong. It's not the house that you worship. 
It's God. What gives the house its specialness? And God's presence is there. Exactly! It wasn't that this glorious house made God special. It's that when God was there, the house was special because it was God, God was dwelling there. I think that is a remarkable point that he makes in the context. For him to talk about this, you know, temple as made with human hands really points out their mistake about that. And I think we can do the same thing. Can't we? Can you think of anything we can end up worshiping and not really worshiping God? Worship the Bible instead of God. Okay. Yeah, perhaps so. Because, you know, if we just give reverence to it without thinking about it being God that speaks it, or maybe even, maybe in a little sense, we will practically worship their copy, you know, as if, you know. their translation. Yeah, or their translation. <laughs> what else? The church. Yeah, what about the church? You know, where people become passionate for the church. You know, this is this is the church. We need to we need to defend the church and we need to uphold the church. Well, as if the church ought to be worshipped. What's the church? The people of God. Should we worship the people? No. What gives us our significance? Well, God has showered his grace upon us and blessed us with his salvation. You know, I, I hear people saying things like, um, well, you know that the church is very important because Jesus bought and paid for it with his own blood. Well, yes, in a way, that's true. We were very important to God. Not because we were important, though. Because he chose to make us important. Uh, but, but we often disconnect the church from people and from God and begin to worship it as kind of our own creation. We can do that with a lot of things. We can do that with the Lord's Supper. You know, is the Lord's Supper some holy thing in and of itself? You know, no, it's, it's specialness is because of the Lord, not because of the Lord's Supper itself. We can turn it into the object of our worship and reverence and not the Lord that gives it significance. So I really think this attitude of turning the temple into an idol is possible to do with anything that God has provided for us when we, when we worship it instead of the God that gives it its significance. Comments and thoughts about that? I think one more thing might be the preacher. I think that part of the story is remembers that, like, if the preacher moves locations, the, some members do too. Like, as if, you know what I mean? As if, like, they're, you know, like they're putting the preacher himself more important than that there's going to be a new preacher coming in to still preach God's word. You know what I mean? Like, I don't well, know. yeah. Do you remember when John tried to worship the angel that was telling him those things in Revelation? Actually, did it twice. 
can you see why John was moved to worship the angel? He is awed. By God's word. the message this angel delivered. And you know what our common mistake is? To, to not realize this is the deliverer and think it was the originator. You know, it's kind of like, what if you get an awesome letter? Do you kiss the feet of the postman? You know, no, you recognize the postman just delivered it. Somebody else authored it. You know, you get a huge check in the mail or something like that. You're glad the postman brought it. But you're really thankful to the person who signed the check. You know, and so a preacher may deliver a really great message if he delivers this faithfully. That's exactly what it'll be. He didn't make the message. He was just the postman. So worship the one who delivers it, or the, 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 the deliverer does, the, the one who originated, not the one who's the messenger. So I think, yeah, we do that a lot. We just got to really get our mind focused more purely on the Lord himself. Amen. Other thoughts on that? Well, God says no house could ever contain him. <laughs> you know, when you consider the uh, size of God, uh, how big a house would it take? <laughs> uh, Roughly the size of the universe. And then some. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't even do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow. The, don't think that you can tame God down into a house. You know, he's, he's way, way outlast that. Really? The temple was a was a way of God giving men a place that they could sort of sort of meet with God, you know, a, a place where they could sort of um, you know turn to and have a, a point of reference with God. It really wasn't something that limited God in any way, you know. So so they just needed to understand that. Wow, by the time he's gotten done with this, do you see how Stephen has really dealt with all their accusations so powerfully? This is an amazing speech. Comments and questions? What was the question? That they asked him. <laughs> yeah, are these things are so? These things so. <laughs> They got a little more than they bargained for, didn't they? <laughs> they were, I may have been looking for a yes-no, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, he, he does a little bit more than that. <coughs> wow. And then he lowers the boom. You know, he's been talking about our fathers and all that kind of stuff. And now he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. 
They are perpetuating the same spiritual failures as previous generations. Nothing has changed. What did they do when God chose Joseph as deliverer? Sold him. What did they do when God chose Moses as deliverer? Pushed him away. You know, they're doing just what their fathers have done. They're uncircumcised. They, boy, that, that's fighting words. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's worse than us telling somebody you're unbaptized. You know, uncircumcised. In heart and ears, you need to cut the sin out of your heart, and you need to get the wax out of your ears. You know, you guys can't hear what God's saying, and your heart's all crusted over with sin. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, presumably, this whole thing with Stephen on trial, that's kind of the idea, he's before the council in 612, uh, but by the time it's over, it looks to me like, instead of Stephen answering for his crimes, he turns around and indicts them and puts them on trial. What do you see in Stephen? It's very bold. Bold. Would you do that? Can you imagine going before this council of the most important people in Judaism and preaching this, saying this? He's got guts. Won't happen for long. But. <laughs> <laughs> and so he says, you know, you, you killed and betrayed the righteous one. That's just the climax of your track record of rejecting God's servants. You know, you received the laws ordained by angels, but you didn't keep it. You don't talk all about the law you want to. You haven't obeyed your own law. What 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 tone do you see Stephen is having? What what what? Why does he say all this? How does Stephen feel? seems enraged. Why? In, injustice. Yes. You know, this is wrong. They have, look at what they've done to God. Look at how much God has blessed them and how outrageous this conduct is when we don't get upset about things. It may just be a reflection of how far away from the Lord we really are. You know, I mean, I think a lot of what Stephen is saying is his outrage at their behavior. You know, we need to have more, you know, pure love for God and willingness to oppose behavior like this. And worse, you know, these are not acknowledged atheist. These were the ones that were claimed to, claiming to be God's own people. That's even more outrageous. And the ones who had every, should have been, look at all the blessings God had given them. Well, other comments and questions? Um, I was wondering, I have an idea, in verse 51, like, 
when we read in the Bible, when they always say, like, you stiff-necked people and stuff, I mean, I have an idea what that means. What does that mean to you, or does it actually, like, the way they use that term? Well, I think the idea is they're stubborn. They can't bend their neck. <coughs> okay, that's how I was. Not the idea. What I was thinking is when you think of someone that's proud, usually they're always... You know what I mean? They're more they're, their head's their nose up in the air. They know that they're right. You know what I mean? And so I just that's what I'm picturing, but I didn't know if that was accurate. I think it's more the idea it can't be turned. Like uh, our dogs are occasionally stiff-necked. We want them to go somewhere, and we pull them along by their collar. And what they do is they do this, <laughs> and they won't go. Well, and, so I never really. I mean, it, I think the term was also used like agriculturally, like with if they had a stiff neck and wouldn't turn the way they were supposed to, not go where they were supposed to. So, but yeah, we, we talk about Iki putting her brakes on and decided she's not going anywhere. <laughs> she's just all stiff and you have to pick her up, but that's a whole other story. So. <laughs> well, well, thank that, you for sparing us. That, <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, cool. For sharing and sparing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Other comments and thoughts? Do you, do you uh, think that they, do you just get the feeling that they sense that he's not going to keep talking about their ancestors? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would assume that some of them see some of the points he's making as he goes through this. I mean, I, I think this is pretty clear. Certainly the parallels with Joseph and Moses. And I think even what he's trying to say about the temple was such a big issue to them. They may not have picked up every detail, but I suspect the ones who were more astute among them, they realized what he was doing. They're here in this holy ground. and, and uh, Yeah, when, when their accusations have been so much, you speak against this holy place. Then he turns around and does that. I mean, it looks to me like they're bound to see what is his point. What can they say? Now, how do you refute a speech like this? The same way they do. Do what? Yeah. Yeah, I think you refute it the same way they do. I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you know, kill the guy. You know, that'll shut him up. If you don't have an answer, you don't think about it. Do you get mad when you know you've got a good answer? You don't have to get mad then. When do you get mad? When you know you've just been showing up. You know there's nothing to say. That's when you get mad. If they could have refuted this, what? they'd have just done that and that would have been that. You know, you, you watch two people who are arguing. You know which guy's wrong? The guy who gets mad. You know, <laughs> nine times out of ten, that's who'll be the wrong one. Usually get louder too. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's all worked up. He doesn't have any ammunition. <laughs> so, they when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth on him. They were grinding their teeth in rage. Now, you know, are they the first people who've been cut to the quick? Remember on the day of Pentecost? 
you know, what do you do when your conscience is pricked? Well, you either humble yourself or you become angry. It hurts when your conscience is pricked. You know, when you get when you get cut to the quick, something's going to happen. Either you're going to change or, or you're going to get upset. You know, does this idea of them gnashing their teeth at him remind you of anything elsewhere in the Bible? There will be doctors and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, absolutely. They are putting themselves already in the category of those who are eternally banished from God. You know, and can you see these? There, there were 70 people on this Sanhedrin council. Can you see these 70 grave rabbis acting like this? Wow! This is just amazing. They, they become very unrabbi like in these verses. My comments and questions through verse 54. Does your, your New American Standard? Yes. Does it actually say cut to the quick? It does. What is that? I mean, I know, I mean, cut to the heart, but where does the word quick come from? Do you know? I've heard this a lot, and I don't know. That bothers me. I don't know what that means. Um, we use it for, like, getting all the way to the bone, practically. Is that what it means in the original? I don't know. Like, whatever you have, if you're, if you have a problem with your fingernail, mm-hmm. the fleshy quick. part's the quick. The painful part. So, yeah. Uh-huh. So, like, if you're trimming the dog's nails and you go to your bar, you cut the click. That's the way I've heard right. it used in yeah. everyday life. I'm assuming that's what this expression is. I know how to use the thing. I just don't know really what it means. You know what I mean? So, both me when I say things I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have that experience it's quite often. It's to the soft and tender part where it could hurt as okay. opposed to just the protective layer. I'm not sure why they use quick for that. But. Okay. That's cool. Quick to the dentist. It's when the dentist hits a nerve and he doesn't have enough Novocaine in there. <laughs> it quickly happened. <laughs> <laughs> he may quickly jump out of this. <laughs> All right. Notice in verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So this, there's a lot of people who've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, in fact, Stephen himself, it says that about him in 6.3 and 6.5. He's a man filled with the Holy Spirit and he's filled with the Holy Spirit here. That wasn't what they were filled with. Uh, Look at verse 51. They resisted the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he saw the glory of God. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's very, very uncommon to see the phrase Son of Man used for Jesus outside of Jesus' own words in the Gospels. Uh, it's used about 70 times in the Gospels. And then, besides here, it's used a couple times in Revelation. So this is an unusual. But he's seeing Jesus at the right hand of God. And uh, that probably is not something they wanted to hear either. 
Don't you imagine? <laughs> Do what? Listen, obviously. Yeah. So they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they'd driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their ro- aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. I mean, what? Verse fifty-seven. What do they? What do they? What do they act like? Little kids. Animals. Yeah, absolutely. A herd of stampeding animals. That's exactly what I think. You know, and they cover their ears. Why would they do that? So that they are tainted with these horrible words that he said. Exactly. Sounds like a kid again. I'm not going to hear it. I can't hear you. You know. Yeah. They just. Wow. They're, they're so enraged, they just do such infantile things. Drove him out of the city and start stoning him. And true to Luke's pattern in Acts, we see the introduction of a character who will later have a much more important role. But here Saul is certainly uh, pro-stoning. He's keeping the coats of the man, men who are doing it. And Stephen then does what Jesus did commends his spirit to the Father and prays that the sin would not be held against them. Now think about his prayer. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I believe later on in the book of Acts we'll see his prayer answered. You can think about that one. Alright, coming to questions on chapter uh, 7. Um, where the Bible talks about like fell asleep, like, here at the last verse, or, like, in First Thessalonians 4, you know, when Christ comes back and stuff, it talks about those who fall asleep. Like, um, is it just a nice way of saying died? Like, how we say passed away? Well, yes, but it's more than that, I think. Because for a Christian, death is not final. It's more like a really long sleep because we're going to be awake. Well, that's a good point. I, never I think that's that. the point. Okay. Alright, I never heard that one. Okay, cool. Where was this trial thing happening? I assume in Jerusalem. Was it like... Because I know I always looked at this as... You know, it talks about Stephen looking up into heaven. And so I always think he's looking up into the bright blue sky. But it occurs to me that this probably was in a building somewhere. Now, I don't know about that. Certainly when they drove him out, it wasn't, because they had stones there, so... I don't know about that. I didn't know where they were, they were meeting. Uh, and they were... Maybe they keep stones in the building for such cases. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, they brought him before the council, and so wherever the council was meeting... Right. Was yeah, that's a good there. question. I don't know the answer. So it just kind of changes my picture a little bit. The result is the same, but it's just a little different mind picture. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, good point. I don't know. And they, have, of course, had to take him out of the city, because you're not supposed to stone people in the city. Right. There are laws against that. <laughs> you would want to do everything by law. If it was in the building, you could have just had a glass ceiling. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll work on Chapter 8 next week. I believe I have...
Yeah, you did. I don't know if I'd ever noticed that. 